Amen. Let's get this out of the way. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Today is Palm Sunday, uh, the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, as a church body, we'll be reading the Easter story together. If you have signed up for our electronic newsletter, I'll send you an email each morning that has the scripture, what happened Monday of Holy Week, what happened Tuesday, and you're welcome to read along with us what happened each day of this week as we enter into Holy Week. Uh, there's a short video with each one of those emails, has a little bit of expert commentary. I hope you'll join us in doing that. But today is Palm Sunday, and this is the day that Jesus, that we celebrate and remember his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We read that text from Luke and from John in our call to worship today. And so we celebrate the fact that Jesus is a king and has declared his kingship over his people in his triumphal entry. As 21st century Americans, we don't really think about or talk about Jesus as a king too often. Uh, we like to think of Jesus as a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We like to think of Jesus as a great physician who heals all our diseases. We like to think of him as a good shepherd who provides for us and leads us and guides us, maybe our elder brother. But Jesus as a king, I, we don't like that too much as 21st century Americans. We broke away from the whole king thing a couple of hundred years ago. I mean, we're Americans. We take a whole day to celebrate our independence. We have parades about being independent. So we're not too keen on having a king. Some even question and say, did Jesus even claim to be a king? Perhaps that's just something the church made up to control people. But as we look at the scripture today, I hope you will see not only that Jesus is a king, but Jesus claimed to be a king. And that the king comes to judge, but the king also comes to save. As we look at the scripture together, let me pray for us and we'll dig in and look for those things together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we ask that you would speak to us through your word now. And that we would see the Lord Jesus as a king and how he executes that office that you have given. And Heavenly Father, I pray that King Jesus would come and rule in our hearts that you would convict us of the ways that we reject his rule, that you would convince us of the beauty of what he accomplished for us during Holy Week, and that you would use all these things to make us more and more into the people that you would have us to be. And we ask that you would do all of this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Three things to think about today. First, Jesus is the king. Second, the king comes to judge. Third, the king comes to save. Where do we see this in the text? First, Jesus is the king. 
The first thing I would say, several reasons for that here in the text. Let me mention just three. First, you need to take notice of the context that we're in here in Luke. We're in Luke 19. But if you go all the way back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, Jesus began this journey to Jerusalem when he set his face like a flint going toward Jerusalem. And during this entire trip for 10 chapters, you can read uh, in Luke 9, all the way up here to Luke 19, every chapter... Jesus is talking about kings and kingship. He tells parables about kings and kingdoms. And he does this because the people had a certain idea of what they wanted their king to be. And Jesus was about to announce that he is the king, but he wanted to shape their expectation of what his kingship would be like. In fact, if you look just before the text that we'll be in today, the triumphal entry starts in Luke 19, verse 28. It says, after Jesus had said this, well, what did he just say? He just told a parable about a man who goes to a far country and is appointed a king, but his subjects hated him and reject the rule of this king. So Jesus has been telling stories about that. I don't want to go all the way back to Luke chapter Nine, but I do want to go back one chapter, just one page, Luke 18, verses 35 to 39. We read there where Jesus is approaching Jericho. So he's about 15 miles from Jerusalem. He's one day's journey walking away, so he's almost here for Holy Week. And in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35, we read as follows. As Jesus approached Jericho... A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, when I was little growing up, I grew up in church and, and heard the stories of the Bible. And when I heard this story as a kid, I remember thinking, well, this guy's yelling as Jesus goes by. And everybody's telling him to be quiet because I had learned that in church we were supposed to sit quietly with our hands folded in our laps. And it's just not right to be yelling when Jesus comes by. I want you to know that is not the right takeaway from this story. Okay, everybody's yelling that Jesus is coming by hundreds of people. That's why the blind man was asking what was going on. Hundreds of people are young. It's not that someone's yelling. That's not what the problem here. It's not the fact that he's yelling. It is what he is yelling. Do you see what he says there? He says, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, he says again, have mercy on me. And he keeps yelling it all the louder. And to our ears, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. But if you read the gospel accounts, you can read where as people have mentioned this idea, Jesus always kind of silences it. When Jesus has cast out demons, they would say, Jesus, we know who you are, son of David. And Jesus would rebuke them. He would tell them to be quiet. He wanted to keep this messianic secret a secret. Because his time had not yet come. But here is this blind beggar yelling out, Jesus, son of David. That doesn't sound like a claim to kingship to us. 
But these folks knew their Old Testament scripture. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read there where God promised David that he would send a descendant of David, a son of David who would sit on David's throne forever, that God would establish his house forever. So you see the problem. Because at this time, these folks are ruled by Caesar in Rome. And it's funny because Caesar in Rome thinks he's going to sit on the throne of David and that he's going to rule this people forever. And so to say that there is another king is dangerous indeed. Psalm chapter 2 talks about this son of God being one who rules the nations and dashes them like pottery. The prophet Isaiah talked about this root of David being one who would rule in righteousness, that he would make all things right, that he would be the one that would make things the way they were supposed to be from the very beginning, that he would set all things right and free God's people. And so for this man to call Jesus son of David, he might as well be yelling out, ultimate king of the universe who came to make all things right. Repeatedly, over and over again, people are telling him to be quiet because they don't want Jesus to get killed. If the Romans hear this kind of talk, they're going to come in, they're going to crack down. They won't allow another king in their kingdom. So the disciples must have been thinking, oh my, what's Jesus going to do now? I mean, he is the son of David, he is the Messiah, that is who he is, but how is he going to handle this? Look at the text, what happens? Verse 40, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus, for the first time, embraces the messianic title publicly. And when does he do so? He does it the week of Passover, the week of Holy Week, when thousands of people would be heading up to Jerusalem, taking this very route that he's taking, the Jericho Road, up to Jerusalem. And so in prime time, with maximum exposure, thousands of people around, for the first time, Jesus publicly embraces the Messianic title. Second thing I see here. Not only does Jesus embrace a messianic title, but he starts doing messianic stuff. He doesn't begin, but he begins to do it publicly. What does he do for this man? He heals his blindness. Isaiah 35, it said it's only the Messiah that does stuff like that. So not only is Jesus embracing the title, but he's doing messianic kinds of stuff. He shows his omniscience and his omnipotence. Those are big words theologians use. just means that Jesus knows all things, and that he has power over all things. And you see that in our text here in Luke 19, as they approach Jerusalem. Verse 29, as he approached Bethpage in Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here to me. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. And so these two disciples go ahead and they found things just as Jesus had said. And you need to understand this is a pretty specific thing Jesus says. It's not as if I say to you, hey, just go to the next town and you're going to find a car there. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you probably will in this day and time. You're going to find a car in a town, most likely. 
But Jesus is very specific. He says you're going to find a, a colt there, a young donkey that's never been ridden before. And they go and they find it just as Jesus said. And Jesus said, take it and bring it back. And if anybody asks you, here's what you say. And it happened just like Jesus said it. The people said, yes, go ahead and take it if the Lord needs it. How did Jesus know? Because he's the king. He knows all things. Because he's omnipotent. He can heal blindness. He has power over the affairs of this world. So Jesus embraces this messianic title publicly. He begins to do messianic kinds of things publicly where people can see. But the big claim to being a king here is the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem during Holy Week. Look at it there in verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their colts on the, clo- the colts on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem. This is really unusual for three reasons. Let me just mention those. First, it's unusual for Jesus because if you read the scripture, we never have the Bible telling us that Jesus traveled on land any way other than on foot. This is the only time we have him traveling on land by some other way than on foot when he takes this mount and rides into Jerusalem. So it's unusual for Jesus. Second, it's unusual for anybody. Because the custom of the time, if you're coming from a long way away and then you have the means to have a mount, you would ride your mount up to the outskirts of Jerusalem and then you would stop and get off the mount out of reverence for the holy city during holy week and the holidays that will take place and so you would get off your mount and lead it by hand up to jerusalem so it's really unusual for anybody to ride into jerusalem only kings or dignitaries would ride into jerusalem so the fact that he rides in jesus is making a statement that he's a king or a dignitary But the third thing that's unusual here is that he would ride in on a donkey. Luke just calls it a colt. The word could be just used to describe a a young camel or a young horse or a young donkey. Matthew and John, who were both there amongst the twelve, clarify that it was a young donkey. And so Jesus, declaring his kingship, yet rides in on a donkey. That's unusual. That's strange. You would expect a king to have a a large camel or a war horse or a white Arabian horse. But here comes Jesus riding in on a donkey. And in doing so, Jesus is telling everyone that he is a very specific kind of king. That he is that Zechariah 9 king that had been foretold hundreds of years before. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, we read... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Jesus, by riding a donkey in, is saying that he is a very particular kind of king. He's that Zechariah 9 king that had been promised by God hundreds of years before that he would be righteous and bringing salvation to his people and having peace extend throughout the world. 
So we have Jesus embracing this messianic title publicly. We have him doing messianic stuff with his omniscience and his omnipotence, his riding into Jerusalem. Clearly, Jesus is making the claim to be a king, and the people understand his claims. In this culture, they know what they know that Jesus is saying. They misunderstand the nature of his kingship, but they hear his claim to be a king loudly and clearly. You see that very clearly in verse 36, because as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. John chapter 12 that we use for our call to worship talks about how they put palm branches. This is the way you would welcome a king or a dignitary into your city. But if that's not enough, if their actions don't tell you what they're thinking, their words certainly do. Look what they say in a loud voice in verse 38. They say in a loud voice, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord these folks recognize jesus was claiming to be a king and not only do the people the rank and file recognize what's going on but the elders and teachers of the law recognize what jesus is saying as well you can read in verse 47 where we're told every day he was teaching at the temple but the chief priests the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him Now, why would they do that? Well, because they enjoyed their positions of power and prestige um, at the pleasure of Rome. And as long as they kept everything in order, then they could remain chief priests and teachers of the law and keep their positions. But if there was unrest, if there was one leading a revolt or a rebellion, then the Romans would come in and crack down and they would lose their positions of privilege and power. So they begin looking for a way to kill Jesus because he's obviously just said that he's the king of the Jews. He's obviously said that he's the one God had promised who would come in the line of David and rule over God's people. In fact, they hear what Jesus is saying. His opponents hear what he's saying loudly and clearly. By Thursday of this week, if you read with us in the story of Holy Week, they will take him to Pilate and say, You need to kill him because he's claiming to be a king and only Caesar is our king. Because they want to maintain their position of power. So they arrest him and bring him to Pilate because of the threat to Caesar. And then of course after trials by Friday of this week they will crucify Jesus on a Roman cross. And what's the sign Pilate has placed over the cross? King of the Jews. Those who were with him and those who opposed him heard Jesus claim to kingship loudly and clearly. And by making this claim, Jesus was forcing a choice. He was saying to all who heard his claim, either receive me as a king or reject me as making an illegitimate grab for power. Either worship me as the king of the universe or like Pilate, wash your hands of me. Either crown me or kill me, but there is no middle ground. Jesus is forcing a choice. And as Jesus comes to us, not on a donkey, but through the preaching of the word, Jesus forces us to make the exact same choice. He has made this claim. And we have to decide whether to make him the absolute center of our lives, to give him absolute control, 
to acknowledge that 100% of all we are, 100% of all we have, 100% of the time belongs to King Jesus. You see, Jesus demands lordship because Jesus is a king. We're not threatened by Jesus as a shepherd who leads and guides. Jesus as an elder brother, a great physician, a lamb. But when Jesus begins to invade our lives, we often make plans to kill him. Whoa, pastor, that's a little harsh. Wouldn't kill Jesus, have a lot of respect for him, wouldn't do that. Oh, but that's what we do, don't we, in our hearts? We can begin to live our lives as if he doesn't exist. We can ignore him. We can avoid him. Let me ask you, how long can you go without allowing King Jesus to speak into your life through his word? How long can you go without communicating with King Jesus, presenting your request to him in that form that we call prayer? How long can you do that? Days? Weeks? Months? Years? In our own hearts, we often act like Jesus does not exist, that he doesn't rule and reign, that he is not a king. But Jesus is a king, and he's forcing us to make the same decision to either receive or reject him. To worship him or wash our hands of him. To crown him or to kill him. But he forces a decision. Jesus is the king. And the king comes for a couple of reasons. I think we see them very clearly here in the text. First, the king comes to judge. But secondly, the king comes to save. Let's look at that together. What do we see in the text that the king comes to judge? Number one, this parable that he just told in Luke 19, 11 through 27. I told you it was about a man who was declared to be king, and then his subjects reject him and say, no, we don't recognize him as king. And it's a judgment parable. At the end, those enemies of his who don't want him to be king over them are brought to him and they're killed. Clearly, Jesus is saying those who reject me as king are going to experience some type of punishment, some type of condemnation, some type of judgment. Secondly, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, you can read in verses 45 to 47 that when Jesus made it to Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple. We'll be ringing about it together as a church body tomorrow. We'll send out that email, what happened on Monday of Holy Week, and Jesus has that enacted parable where he curses the fig tree, and then he cleanses the temple, which is a clear act of judgment on God's chosen people whom he had given the law and the prophets, and he had worked through them, but they presumed upon the gracious place that God had given them. They had kept these things to themselves. They had not produced fruit in keeping with the people of God. They had not produced fruit like the fig tree. And so there's a curse, there's a judgment that takes place. You can read about that tomorrow in the reading and hear some of that expert commentary. I want to focus on a third thing, a third way that I see judgment here. As Jesus pronounces judgment on Jerusalem, look at verses 41 to 44. We see Jesus clearly pronouncing judgment here. 
And I'm going to ask you after reading this, why is he pronouncing judgment? Why does the king pronounce this judgment on the people of Jerusalem? Look there with me, verse 41 and following. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You hear the reason? You hear the judgment. This place is going to be leveled. Your enemy is going to have victory over you. But why? Because their enemy was so strong? No, that's not why he says. Why does he say? He says because they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. They didn't recognize his kingship, his lordship. There's actually a play on words here. The city Jerusalem is made up of that word shalom. It's known as the city of peace, Jerusalem. And so this play on words that he has, he says, those of you who live in the city of peace don't know what peace is. It's been hidden from you. It's elusive. You don't see it. You don't see the peace when the Zechariah 9 king comes riding in to bring peace to you. You don't see what it is that will give you peace. And judgment results because they do not recognize who Jesus is. Now, if you're a student of history, you recognize that these things Jesus talked about occurred in 70 A.D. The Romans do come in and have this embankment and hem them in and dash the wall so that one stone is not left on another. That actually happens in 70 A.D. But that historic judgment is only a picture of the judgment to come. It's only a foretaste, an appetizer, something pointing to the judgment to come. Jesus, even in the present time, pronounces judgment on those who do not recognize who he is. I think of John chapter 3. Many of us know John 3, 16. And, but if you keep reading there in John 3 and verse 18, Jesus says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus goes on in John chapter 5, and he explicitly says there that the Father, down there in verses 26, throughout verse 27, he specifically says that the Father has given the Son authority to judge. And there in John chapter 5, Jesus goes on to say that a day is coming when the dead will rise and join the living, and all of those will stand before the Son of God who will judge them. And those who believe will not be condemned, but those who do not embrace who he is and recognize his lordship will be condemned. We said earlier that those demons that Jesus had cast out, they recognized who he was. They said, we know who you are, Jesus, son of David. But they're condemned because they don't repent. They recognize who he is, but they don't turn from their rebellion and turn to him and give him a place of honor, bending the knee to King Jesus. People of every age must make a choice. 
Will you today recognize the time of God's coming to you as he speaks to you through his word? I must warn you that your decision has eternal consequences. Because a day is coming when the king will return and he will not be gentle and riding on a donkey. I think of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We read there in verse 7, This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Revelation 19 goes on to describe Jesus not as gentle and riding on a donkey, but riding a white war horse with a sword coming from his mouth coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It goes on to say that some are cast into a lake of burning fire while others are gathered for a great feast. So when King Jesus returns, it will be a blessing for some, but a curse for others. Which will it be for you? I don't know what your background is with the church or what you've heard preached before. But I hear things like that, and I remember growing up in the church as a kid thinking, I, why, why is this pastor so whipped up? Sometimes we enjoy telling people that, that some people are going to be cast into a lake of burning fire. Many of us, because of the abuse of that kind of preaching, have just learned to tune it out and not take it seriously. Listen, if you come here much, you know this is not a hellfire and brimstone type of preaching kind of a place. And as the church, when we talk about these things, we need to talk about them the way Jesus did. What did he do in verse 41? When he looked and pronounced judgment, he wept over the city. This is nothing that I take great joy in or that any of us should take great joy in. But as a minister of the gospel, if I'm going to say what this book says and be honest with you, not tell you what I want to be true, but what the Lord says, I must tell you that these things are what he says in his word. And so I call you this day to receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Do not reject Jesus as a king, because Jesus is a king, and he will come to judge. But the third point of this sermon, what I long to get to and want to tell you about, is that the king also comes to save. The king comes to save. Where do you see that in the text? Well, look at Luke 19, earlier in the chapter, when he's in Jericho and he goes to the house of Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus repents, when he says, I'm no longer going to live the way I did before, and he starts giving things back, when he's showing the fruit of repentance there in Luke 19 and verse 8, then Jesus says in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Oh, the king comes to save. And how does he bring this salvation? We've already sung about it today, right? Do you remember? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted 
you were condemned. Jesus told his disciples this is what was going to happen. Three times in this trip to Jerusalem, he explains to the disciples what's going to happen. They don't understand. The third time he does here in the book of Luke is, is, is one chapter earlier, Luke 18 and verse 31. We read there that Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. So how does the king save? King Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice to pay for our sin and bring peace. Peace between us and God. Peace between one another. As we sang earlier, it should be hard for us to believe that it's amazing that a king would die for me, that he would take the punishment that I deserve. Maybe you are here today, and you are convicted that you have not acknowledged Jesus as king, that there are long periods of time that you live your life as if Jesus doesn't exist. With you calling the shots, with you doing what you want to do, as if Jesus is not ruling the world as he is not the king of kings and the lord of lords and you feel convicted by that and that's good if you feel that listen that's god's holy spirit working on your heart that means you have not been forsaken by him it means that he's given you an awareness of your sin so that you can turn from those things and yes, I do want you to be convicted. I pray every week before I preach that you would be convicted by the word. But listen, I don't want you to just be convicted of sin. I also want you to be convinced by the beauty of what King Jesus has done for us. I want you to be convinced of the good news of the gospel. And to say it as clearly as I know how. After last week's sermon, as a reduction of what the full gospel is, I would say, God saves sinners. That's the whole point of Palm Sunday, that the king comes to save. It's what he said to Zacchaeus right before he rides in. It's the whole message of Palm Sunday as Jesus rides in on a donkey, as that righteous king... Gentle and rising, riding on a, who comes bringing salvation. It's the whole point of Palm Sunday that the king comes to save. We all at times refuse to submit to the rule of King Jesus. You recognize the symptoms of it in your own life, don't you? We get anxious or angry. We get frustrated, we get manipulative when don't, things don't go the way that we think they should go. Do you hear the core of thinking that we believe we know the way things should go? We, we believe that, that we know how things should be. And we put ourselves on the throne of our lives and try to force our will in place of the will of the king. That's our sin. That's our root problem that we want to be on the throne of our own lives. If you recognize that tendency in yourself, how you do that, I want you to hear and believe the good news of the gospel today. And that is this, that sin came into the world when the servants put themselves on the throne in the place of the true king, and the servants try to rule in his place. 
But the king comes to save. And salvation came into the world when the true king put himself in the place of the servants and died in their place for their treason and took the judgment that they deserve. That's how Jesus fulfilled all that the prophets taught that he referred to there in Luke chapter 18. I often get this question. This is a good question to ask. Maybe you get this question sometimes. People have heard that preaching of the gospel. They've heard that presentation. And they say, but how can that be true for me? How can that be true in my life? How can that become real for me? Because a lot of times it remains a truth that we know in our heads, like the demons who can recite what is true, but it doesn't seem to make a big difference in our hearts. How can that be true for me? It's a great question. I would say that we have to go back to where we started in Luke chapter 18 and become like this blind beggar. And we have to realize that we are blind, that we think we know the right way, but we really don't see clearly. We have to realize that we are bankrupt, that we bring nothing to the table, that we're broken and messed up people, and we must cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. We must see our true condition and cry out to the king and say, King Jesus, I make you the absolute center. I give you absolute control. Take the throne of my life. And we do that over and over and over again as we fight our flesh and our tendency to take back control of our life. As soon as I talk about that, giving Jesus absolute control, making him the absolute center, center of our lives. I know many of us have this reaction. People, if they're honest with me, if I get close enough, they'll say this to me. They'll say, you know, I want that, you know, being saved from judgment thing. <laughs> I want that. I want Jesus as my Savior. But I'm not sure I want a king. I'm not sure I want Jesus as Lord. I must tell you, you cannot have Jesus as your Savior and not have Jesus as your King. It all comes together. If you don't have Jesus as your King, you don't really have him as your Savior. And so if giving him absolute control causes you to pause, let me make one more appeal. I want to share with you something that has gripped my heart, an image from this story that has helped me. Whether you were hesitant to give Jesus control of your life for the first time, whether it's something you were continuing to struggle with on a daily basis because we all face that temptation that we're not sure we're going to trust Jesus with everything. I want to leave you with this image that's been so helpful to me. When you're in that place that you want to take back control, remember this little donkey that no one had ever ridden. Think about that little donkey. I'm no cowboy or a farmer, but what do you think would happen if you or if I got on a donkey that nobody had ever ridden before and tried to ride him through a crowd of people shouting and throwing their cloaks and palm branches on the road before us? What do you think would happen? I think that thing would probably jump and kick and buck and neigh or bray or whatever it is donkeys do, they would go crazy. 
That's not what happens here. Jesus gets on a donkey that's never been ridden with people screaming and throwing things. And this young cult, we use the phrase that we would, the cult has to be broken, that we break a horse. But Jesus doesn't break this cult. He heals it. He heals him of his fear. With Jesus riding him, it brings great calm. It brings great peace. And it helps me to remember that image that Jesus is the only one who can rule over us without breaking us. He's the only one that can rule over us without destroying us. Don't be afraid of the lordship of Jesus in your life. When you're tempted to take control, remember the little donkey and remember that when Jesus is in the saddle, he doesn't break us, he heals us. His rule brings healing to our hearts and peace to our lives, even in the midst of great turmoil. So don't be afraid of, don't run from the lordship of Christ. Let's pray and ask him to rule over us, that his rule would bring us peace and heal us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this image of the little donkey. Father, I pray that you would make my heart like his, that you would heal me of my fear, that I would trust King Jesus to lead, guide, and direct me, that he would bring calm and peace in a world of turmoil. Father, I ask for that for my friends. <laughs> we think we know the right way. We think we know what should happen. I pray that you would help us to trust you. King Jesus, we ask that you would ride into our hearts today, that you would subdue us, that you would heal us and bring great peace. Please come and do that now for the good of your people and for the glory of King Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.